All right, so we're going to be looking into this passage of Scripture. We're going to be jumping around just a little bit. And I don't know what else to say. This is a, this is a tough topic, but it's a topic that we have to discuss from time to time. This is a topic you won't get in a lot of churches these days because, like First uh, Timothy says, they gather around them teachers and preachers that tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And you all are not that congregation. You don't want just a pat on your back saying, look, you're good, you're going to be fine, God loves you, now keep smiling. Sometimes we got to be corrected. Sometimes we have to um, go through difficulty. Sometimes we have to know what it feels like to be abandoned for a period of time. We talked about in this cycle of sin, this, this study of the games people play. Uh, first, we talked about pacification, which is this concept of peace. Uh, the world sells a false sense of peace, and a lot of times we buy into it thinking that's all we need. We've got what we need. We're covered. Uh, like, like people who just completely surround their houses with surveillance cameras and all kinds of security features to keep the world out of their home, right? Uh, but then there's a power outage, and what do you do now, right? Oh, but I have a generator. Oh, but what do you do when that fails? You know. But anyways, I don't want to get in that. The next week, we talked, we talked about prostitution, which is the game of idolatry. And we talked about how Israel had a history of turning away from God and worshiping other idols. And we talked about how we're all guilty of the same stuff. And then this week, we're going to talk about the game of perseverance because we're looking at punishment and persecution today. Punishment and persecution. In Judges 2, verses 14 through 15, this is in the midst of this passage I just read, a couple things we need to highlight. And if you have your highlight or pen, just circle these things or write them on your bulletin. It says that in his anger against Israel, this is God's anger against Israel, um, I put in parentheses provocation. The scriptures make it very clear that the behavior of his children provoked him to anger. He didn't just wake up one day on the wrong side of the bed and say, you know what, I think I'm going to be mad at my people. Uh, He was provoked to anger. Uh, We have a God who never changes, so the scriptures tell us that. So we have to assume that God still has the ability to be provoked to anger. He just chooses not to um, punish the earth in a flood or in, in some other means by which he could at his disposal. He has a plan, and in the end, that will come to fruition. But in his anger, the provoked anger... The Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. Remember, these were his children. They are his children. He handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all over, whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. So we're going to talk about each of those little things, but I want to give you a couple verses here uh, in addition. In verse 18, it says this, For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed them and afflicted them. And in verse 21 of Judges 2, it says, I will no longer drive out before them 
any of the nations Joshua left when he died, I will use them to test Israel and to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. So if we stretch this out and pull out all these little verbs and all these little uh, things that God allowed or permitted or did, we're going to get a list like this. He handed over. Who They plundered him. He sold them. They were unable to resist. His hand was against them, and they were in great distress. They were oppressed, they were afflicted, and they were failing to drive out the nations before them. This was a very difficult time for Israel, and so we have to remember that all of this in the Old Testament that we can still see at work in us, that we are not you know, excluded from this type of behavior or this type of sinfulness, we're all in it too. It just looks differently today. And so we have to understand that when we read this th- these things, that if we continue in our sinfulness, if we embrace sinfulness over righteousness, over holiness, then we have to expect that there's going to be some discipline involved. The scriptures make it clear, God disciplines those he loves. If he doesn't love us, he won't discipline us. Didn't we used to say that when our kids were little? It hurts me more than it hurts you. This is for your good. I have to do this. I have to spank your little bottom, not because I want to or because I'm sadistic, but because you failed and you need to be corrected. Bible says, spare the rod, spoil the child, right? Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from them. I I think I still remember that from my mom preaching that to me. Um, We have to understand there's going to be discipline. So let's look at these words for just a minute, and we'll try to make sense of this. At first, it says, he handed them over. In the Hebrew, this is we-yit-tanem, which means that he gave them or he delivered them into the hands of the enemy. So he took, took the children of Israel in his hands, and he gave them. He just, here, here to the enemy, take them. If you would, just take them from me. Now, that's a loving thing. We have to understand God is all about love. It's all about love. This is not ugly. It's not hatefulness. But he took the children and he set them on the lap of his enemy. Now, he does the same with us. If you want to, to delve into this sinful behavior in this world, then he's not going to say, no, you're not going to do it. He says, if this is what you want, here you go. And he will lay you in the lap of his enemy because this is what you want. And that is an act of love on his behalf. It would not be an act of love if he put concrete barriers around you and handcuffed you to the bedpost and said, no, you're going to stay here and I'm going to protect you. That's not love. So he handed them over. He delivered them. He gave them. Plunders is a Hebrew word, sosim, which means, uh, would translate either robbers, thieves, or, or spoilers. In John 10.10, 10, you will remember this, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There is a thief in the world. We know that in the context, because Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I come through the front gate. I show love and protection to my people, to my sheep. But the thief comes through the back door. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So we know that the thief is the devil. 
And the devil prowls around like a roaring lion to devour his prey. We are the prey. And so we know that Jesus is talking about the devil who is, who is out there looking for an opportunity to seize us, to steal from us, to kill us and destroy us. They are plunderers. The devil is a plunderer. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, 1 through 6, David, who is the king of Israel, had a little problem with the Amalekites. David and all the men of Israel were all fighting, and while they were gone, the Amalekites snuck into camp and stole every one of their wives and their children and took them into captivity. It says they did not kill any of them, but they kidnapped them. They stole them. They plundered the city of the Israelites when they were out doing whatever it was they were doing. And so when David and all the men came back, there was a major, major problem, as you could imagine. Uh, I'll, I'll read to you some of this, if I can remember where 1 Samuel 30 is. Um, this is amazing stuff. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Stay there. On the third day. And it says, now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. Raided. Raiders, raid, right? Plunderers, plunder. Uh, They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord his God. The point is, is that the plunderers plunder, the raiders raid, and God allows it to happen in order to get the attention of his people, in order to test his people. So plunders plundered. Uh, it also says that, the, that they despoiled them. This is, a, I think, a King James definition. They despoiled them. It comes from the Hebrew word, which means to be plundered or spoiled. It says that he sold them into the hands of his enemy. is the Hebrew. It means to sell, or this is interesting, to be given over to death. So when God sells his children into the hands of the enemy, he's giving them over to their death. Now, this is not just a haphazard thing. This is to illustrate that God is deeply troubled, deeply troubled, and he doesn't know what else he can do. He's at the end of his rope. The enemies is an interesting phrase because we have to think, now, who are the enemies of God? Because he should have no enemies. He is God. Who would dare be an enemy to him? Well, there's only one, and that's the devil himself. In Luke 22, uh, verses 31 to 32, you may remember this passage. Peter, the beloved disciple, well, not John was the beloved disciple, but he was one of them. Peter was the one that he would build his church upon. And, And Jesus said to Peter, the devil has asked for permission to sift you like wheat. And I... Hope and pray that you will survive. 
is what he says to Peter. So in other words, the devil has come here asking for you that he may test you, and I'm granting permission to, to the devil to, to do this to you. And I hope that you survive. I hope that you come back to me. Interesting. Interesting that we have to consider that the devil wants us and, 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 and uh, that God grants permission to the devil to attack us on the basis of our sinfulness and our rejection of God's holiness. Because he's a loving God. He hands us over to the enemy. He sells us to the enemy for uh, to, up to the excess of death. And he allows this type of training and testing. It says also in this passage, they could no longer stand before their enemies. Now, this is an interesting phrase to me because I, I immediately start thinking of football. And you will remember, I painfully remember, you may remember, if you don't do football, you won't know. But about a year and a half ago, my Vikings were playing for the NFC championship against the Philadelphia Eagles, who went on to win it all, right? Minnesota was an amazing team. They were dominating everybody. They had just upset uh, New Orleans with the Minneapolis miracle. Okay, I see blank stares, but that's, just, just indulge me here. So when Minnesota went to Philadelphia to play them, we were... We were on cloud nine. We were ready to dominate because we were hosting the Super Bowl that year, and we just knew we were going to be the first team ever to win it on our home turf. But when we went to Philadelphia, it got ugly. It got ugly real quick. I mean, it got so ugly that many of us fans were turning the channel because we couldn't see. It was like watching a train wreck about to happen. We're just like, no. It's like it was grotesque. You just couldn't do it. But, but I would try and I would come back and it was like everything that we did to try to win or try to score, it just failed. Everything failed. We'd intercept it. We'd fumble it, whatever. We'd get sacked, we'd, whatever. It was just so ugly. And, and so what was interesting is this team who a week ago looked like they were on top of the world now looked like they were the scum of the earth. And, and I wrote down some phrases when it came to defeat. These players played like they were already defeated. Almost like their whole attitude and demeanor had shifted. Like, why bother? Let's just quit and go home. Everything we do fails. Everything we try, it's like they already know our game plan. Everything we try to do, it, it just crumbles. So why don't we just give up? There was confusion. All right, if we try this, maybe we'll sneak it by them. Didn't work. If we try this, we'll sneak it past them. Didn't work. I even wonder this. Are they cheating? Is the other team cheating? I mean, we weren't playing New England, but that's still a, an option, right? <laughs> and then they begin to doubt themselves. Should we even be here in this game? We have no right to play a team like this because we're completely out of our element. So, so this is the phrase, they could no longer stand before their enemy. So when it's re referencing the other nations around us or directly in the New Testament to the devil himself, it's like, you know, everything we do just fails. We can't do anything right. Every decision we make is wrong. And, and it's like, why bother? Why did I just quit going to church completely? Because I can't do this. I try to be loving to people who are mean. I can't do it anymore. I try to give money, but I'm struggling to pay my own bills. I try to serve, but yet I have no time. 
Everything I do fails. I get married, and that's a terrible disaster. I I switch jobs, that's a disaster. Everything I do fails because we can no longer stand before the enemy. We have no confidence, we have no stamina, we have no strength. All we have are defeat, confusion, and doubt. Now, here's the thing. When that happens in our spiritual lives, is God behind it? He's the one who allowed it to happen. Because of our sinfulness, because of our behavior, because of our stubbornness, he has just said, here, I'm giving you to the enemy. That you may be sifted like wheat. This is a time of testing. Because I want to see, as God said back here in Judges, um, the Lord allowed those nations to remain, those, uh, those enemies to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Why did he do that? To test Israel, to see whether they would keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. It's a test. And in many times in our lives, we're going to fail that test. Maybe not in the final exam, but in those little quizzes. We're going to just keep falling on our faces. So we have to understand that that when this happens and our life is, is just falling apart and everything's going to pot, we have to understand this could very well be because of my sinfulness, my bad choices, my sinful behavior, or my flawed character. And if that's true, then the way to reverse this trend is simply to repent. But we'll get to that in, in future weeks. It, it's just crazy stuff. And I, I'm, I'm just talking in my own experience. I, you all probably never have to go through any of this stuff. But whenever I make a bad decision and I start embracing a particular sin or, or rebelling a little bit from God, my life falls apart. Maybe I'm the only one. But it just once it starts falling apart, it's like I can't get back on track again. You know, once you skip one Sunday, you skip three Sundays, you skip 10 Sundays, it's hard to get back at it, isn't it? Once you quit reading your Bible, isn't it hard to get back at it? Next thing you look and you're like, if you're journaling like I do, you'll look and you're like, I haven't journaled in three weeks. It happens. It happens. But when you're declining spiritually and becoming weaker and weaker and weaker, you're becoming more and more discouraged. And you feel like you're being more and more useless. Another thing that it says here is that God was against them for calamity. Calamity comes from the Hebrew, le-ra'ah, which means unto evil, for harm, or to be hurt. God uh, intentionally is against us so that we might get hurt. That doesn't sound loving, does it? But that's exactly what love does. Because in the midst of your rebellion and your sinfulness, God's not going to control you and force you into something you don't want. So lovingly, he says, here, I will give you to my enemy. I will set you into his lap. I give you permission. If you want to worship him, go worship him. And I will be here when you figure out that you made a bad decision. 
And in that time frame, you're probably going to get hurt. Because if you don't get hurt, you probably won't learn anything. As a parent, this is the most difficult thing in the world for Paige and I. Because we, we struggle with this. We want to prevent our kids from facing hurt. Or, or, or really destroying their lives. Or ruining their credit. Or whatever it is. We want to intervene and protect them, right? But then we start thinking, you know what? Nobody protected us. God allowed those things to happen to us to teach us. Our kids don't look at it as such. They look at it as like we're being oppressing. You're just mean to me. You just won't let me grow up. You just are wanting to control my life. No, we're trying to protect you from going through the same hardship we did. But go ahead, in your stubbornness, go ahead, do what you got to do. But when you fall on your face, we'll still be here to pick you up, hopefully, right? Joshua 24.20 is important because the other thing is that God says, after he says, uh, against them for calamity, he says, as I have sworn to you. Now, that stands out to me because we have to figure out, okay, where exactly did God swear that if we sinfully rebel against him, that he's going to discipline us in this fashion? Well, it just so happens it's in Joshua 24, verse 20. In Joshua 24, that's where Joshua had just, he's getting ready to give up the reins of leadership, and all the 12 tribes have inhabited their their portion of of the promised land. They failed to kick out the inhabitants, so that's a different sermon, but they failed, but they still possessed their land. And so this is Joshua's farewell to them. He gathers all the leaders together, and he says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether it be God of the foreigners, God of our neighbors, or God himself. Choose for yourself this day. And the people have said, we choose God. We want God to be our God. We want to serve him because he was so faithful to our forefathers. And then Joshua, in verse 24, 19, and 20, says, you can't. You'll fail. You think you got it right. You think you want to do this, but I know you. You're going to fail. But in 24, 20, he says this. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, idolatry, he will turn, and he will bring disaster on you, and he will make an end of you. After... He has been good to you. So God did swear. Turn against me. You're going to suffer the consequences. It's the same then as it is today. If you don't want to serve the Lord, just prepare yourself for some hardship. It won't go well to you. God loves you too much to let you just go down the wrong path and and be blessed. It's not going to happen. Now, the cycle of sin, like I said before, occurs six times in the book of Judges. And you can just see it playing out how, you know, I broke it down to five sermons, but it's really six. But we're, I'm out of time, so we're comprising these into five. But if you look at it, you'll see this occurs six times in the book of Judges. It begins in chapter 3, verse 8, chapter 3, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 7, and chapter 13, verse 1. If you don't believe me, look them up. But this is how he treated Israel when they got to this part of the cycle of sin. In 3.8, he sold them. In 3.12, he gave them over. 
In 4.2, he sold them. In 6.1, he gave them. In 10.7, he sold them. In 13.1, he delivered them. Pretty similar, right? Across the board. He acted the same way consistently. Because Israel acted the same way consistently. But here were the repercussions. This is how they were punished and disciplined for their idolatry behavior. In 3.8, they were subject to and oppressed for eight years. In 3.12, they were attacked and oppressed for 18 years. In chapter 4, verse 2, they were cruelly oppressed for 20 years. In chapter 6, verse 1, they were severely oppressed for seven years. And it says they were impoverished for seven years. That was when they were actually living in the cliffs of the caves, or the caves and the cliffs, because they were trying to avoid the enemy. And they were starving to death because they kept having their fields raided and their food was just destroyed. In 10.7, they were shattered and crushed for 18 years. And in chapter 13, verse 1, they were oppressed for 40 years. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, I wonder what oppression means. <laughs> At least that's what I was thinking. Oppression is defined biblically as this. The wrong done through violence to load or burden with unreasonable impositions to treat with unjust severity, rigor, or hardship, to overpower, or my favorite one, to sit or lie heavy upon hardship or calamity. Oppression to me is, uh, this is just my way of making sense of this, because depression and oppression are kind of similar, but they're different. Depression can be caused by oppression, if oppression is a, a, a 500-pound man like me sitting on you, I'm sorry, I'm still under three, but I'm close. But if, if a person like me were sitting on your chest, you would feel oppression. If I sat on your chest for a long period of time, it would turn into depression. Not only like that, but your chest would be depressed, Right? So depression is different than oppression. Oppression, I think, comes from an outside source, but causes an internal depression. Um, Go to Psalm 32 for a minute. I just lost my train of thought, so we're jumping ahead. In Psalm 32... This is right after King David had the affair with Bathsheba. And he penned these words. We'll we'll start with Psalm 32 with verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of yesterday's summer winds. Then I acknowledged you, I acknowledged my sin to you, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. 
So you see those, the, the imagery, your hand was heavy upon me, pushing me down and making it hard to breathe, making it hard to, to eat, making it hard to, to enjoy life. Your hand was pushing me down. And why was the Lord doing that to him? Because of his sinfulness, his unconfessed, undenied, unrepented sinfulness. And God just kept pushing down on him because God had a plan for him to prosper him, to bless him, to use him, to advance his kingdom. And so God had to correct him. And so this is what happens. You have a sinfulness in your life, something that you won't confess. Perhaps you're trying to justify it. It's okay for me to do this because they deserve it or because this happened to me. So you, you deliberately refuse to confess and repent of your sin. And so the heaviness of God's hand is upon you. And he's going to keep pushing you down and pushing you down. But here's the other thing. You're not going to know if it's God or the devil because the devil is also going to push you down. He wants to squish you into oblivion. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. He wants to smother you into the ground and cause you to give up on God completely. Same scenario. It originated in your sinfulness. And to get rid of it, all you have to do is confess and repent and turn from your wickedness. And he will release you from that. If the devil is attached to it, then he will, his ties to you will be severed in your repentance and confession. And then you can breathe again. And you'll be able to rise up again. And I'm promising when that happens, you will sing your songs of praise to the Lord for delivering you. You will. But until then, you're going to be oppressed. Israel was oppressed for anywhere from seven years to 40 years oppressed. That's stubbornness. For 40 years, they were being oppressed for their sinful behavior, and they still were refusing to repent and confess. 40 years. My question is, how long have you been oppressed? How long have you been oppressed? All you have to do is say, Lord, you know, it's been so long. I don't know why I'm being oppressed, but I think you do. So tell me, why am I being oppressed? And God will say, oh, well, remember this sin right here? Remember this attitude? Remember this, uh, this thing that you did or created or caused? And you're like, really, God? That wasn't that important. All right, let's oppress you for 40 more years. Right? But when we're humble and when our humility, when we come back to the Lord groveling with tears in our faces and brokenness in our hearts saying, Lord, I can't take it anymore. Would you please show me where I'm wrong? Show me where my sinfulness originated. God will cut through to the source of that pain and he will pull it out of you. He doesn't want you to suffer. You're being tested. In your oppression, cry out to him, not the doctor who prescribes medications. All that does is treat the symptoms. Go to the Father. Let him penetrate it. If you keep reading in 32, this is what he says. This is God speaking to David. There's a shift in tone. He says, God is saying to David, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule who have no understanding. Do your horses uh, have any understanding? Well, when we don't, I like to smell them, and I start to see them, I start to know them. There you go. 
Is do you ever have to put a bit and a bridle on them? Mm-hmm. Exactly. David understood that. He said they have no understanding, but they must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. That's crazy talk right there. Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. We're almost done. The oppression's almost over. Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by... Oh, wrong one. In your struggle against sin, there's verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons... My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes, he punishes, he punishes everyone that he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as, as discipline. God is treating you as sons for what son is not disciplined by his father. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and, have, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. He loves you. He doesn't want you to suffer. He wants to get the oppression off of you. He wants to set you free so that you can have joy and life everlasting, life abundant. He wants to bless your life, but he can't do it as long as you're holding on to sinfulness and negative behaviors and bad theology and whatever else it is that, that holds him back. He wants to embrace you and have fellowship with you, and it's all up to you as to when that will resume. Confession and repentance, they're not difficult. They're your your friend. They're your friend. Embrace them. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we love you, and we know that you love us. Lord, help us to trust you with this brokenness, with this painfulness, with this sinfulness. Help us to trust you, to just follow the Holy Spirit's lead. Let us lay these things at your feet that you might relieve us of the oppression that we've been going through for decades, perhaps. Set us free, Lord. Holy Spirit, convict us. Show it right in our faces. What is it that we need to confess and show it to us and give us the faithfulness to lay it at your feet. We love you, Lord. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.